It is a center for higher learning. It is a place with centuries of secrets in its shadowed halls. This is where you have come to learn the mysteries of the cosmos. Welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Miskatonic University Podcast, Episode 62. This is the podcast dedicated to Call of Cthulhu and other horror and Lovecraft-related role-playing games. I'm Keeper Dan. And I'm Keeper John. Welcome. In this episode, we'll walk the high wire line between Monty Hall and Killer Keeper. And for the main topic, we're going to go into flintlocks, revolvers, and javelins. Oh my. First, we're going to start things off, as usual, in our campus crier. Miskatonic University Campus Crier. Campus Crier's Miskatonic U student paper is going to go through news and feedback. This episode's recorded August 10th, 2014. Starting off, I am Scott Glancy has finally gotten his uh, Kickstarter going for Horrors of War: A Covenant with Death. This is the awesome. collection of yeah. This is the collection of World War One Call of Cthulhu scenarios that he's been compiling for a long time now. Yes, yeah. If uh, fans who uh, may also listen to uh, the Roleplay Public Radio. Uh, may have also listened to some of the, uh, not necessarily, pl- I guess, playtests, uh, playtests of some of the, uh, horrors of war scenarios. Um, one of the, the big one, my, my personal favorite is Dig to Victory, uh, will be in this, uh, in this compilation. Uh, in Dig to Victory, the PCs are, uh, tunnelers on the, uh, on the front line. Um, it's a British unit, I believe. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they did the, the guys that contributed, cause I know, uh, there were, there were several authors that contributed to this, but they just did a ton of great research and, um, found some, some really cool, interesting, um, occupations and, and, and scenarios during World War One to include these tunnelers. Like I had no idea about this. Until I heard the, uh, until I started listening to to the uh, to the actual play for that scenario, that I mean, yeah, sure, they dug trenches, you know, open air, you know, trenches, but I had no clue that they had these very sophisticated tunneling network systems deep underground, you know, and and that there was a whole tete a tete kind of going on with uh, German tunnelers and stuff like that. So very cool information, very cool uh, setting for, for uh, 
horror and, and Lovecraftian mythos uh, entities and things like that. So definitely looking forward and has, and I have been looking forward to, to this Kickstarter finally launching. Yeah. I believe we're, I think we're only a week into it. Is that right? I believe so. They're doing the, a long stretch. So, which I think is great. Yeah. It's still got 50 days to go on it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was a 60 day Kickstarter. And I, I think one of the reasons why that's such a good choice for length of a, of a Kickstarter is this is launching or it launched right before and will be running right during, uh, Gen Con. And, you know, I, I mean, money's not infinite. You know, people have budgets mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm assuming a lot of folks are in the same boat that I'm in where I made a budget for Gen Con and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to use the money that I've budgeted for Gen Con at Gen Con. And so having a long run on this Kickstarter will give me an opportunity to, uh, you know, refund, uh, re, group and check my finances and and be able to jump in on this uh uh kickstarter probably yeah. closer towards the end of its run so yeah so that's and what the I'm show at. is going to give scott plenty of time to get people you know into it and excited and kind of spread the word yeah because i think i heard uh either on the unspeakable podcast or or just uh maybe on facebook or Google Plus, something like that, where where I'll see Adam Scott Glancy's presence and and what he talks about. Um, I think they are planning on having. Obviously, they're going to have a presence at Gen Con, but I think they're going to have uh, some papers or whatever that they can give away that are going to you know give incentive for folks to uh, to check out the uh, check out the or the Kickstarter. So. Cool. So that's good. I'm looking forward to that. So good on them on that. Pagan Publishing yeah. is always great. And they always do great work. Absolutely. And the next, we got a message from uh, Dean Adelaide that the uh, his website, Cthulhu Reborn, they like to put out you know free stuff for Call of Cthulhu. And it's been a little while since he's added new things because he's been doing other projects for uh, other companies like, well, Chaosium. And so... He's really happy to be able to announce that there's a new free source guide that's going to be on the way soon called The Machine King by Jeff Gillian or Gillan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is apparently something that was uh, written in the mid 90s because according to the the page where the announcement is uh Lynn Willis had actually sought out ideas for alternate dreamlands settings and that's what this is so it's kind of a machine based dreamlands rather than the renaissance fair dreamlands that Lovecraft gave us oh my gosh i i clicked on the uh, link that we'll have provided that goes to uh, Cthulhu Reborn site and talks about it and they have a uh, a cover mock-up of uh-huh. the Machine King. And it, on there it says a nightmare scenario for Cthulhu by Gaslight. So it sounds like it could be alternate Dreamlands and Gaslight kind of mix. I yeah, mean, I'm not sure. Cause in the text he's talking about that it's an alternate Dreamlands, but wow. Super, you know, super. I'm, I'm thinking that it's basically a campaign that is intended to start with Gaslight era 
characters going yeah. to the dreamlands and it's this, you know, freaky machine thing. But it looks really neat. And there's there's this detailed story about the creation of this on the page. So read through that because, you know, this is one of those projects that was thought lost for a while and then it was found again. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe Jeff Gillian is uh, the author of the uh, Horror on the Orient Express. He's the, or as as the wiki, as the Yogg-Sothoth wiki puts it, the original mastermind. Ah, nice. So he was, he was the driving force behind okay. it. Okay. Which means Machine King ought to be pretty kick-ass. Yeah, and he also did that uh, Iron Ghost scenario. In, oh, that you did. The one that you ran. Yeah. And the one that I ran, yeah. Which I thought was so funny because Iron Ghost is, uh, you know, based on a train. You know, mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. Horror in the Express is a train. So I wonder if there's going to be a train in Machine King. And Machine I King is so. going to be free when this thing is done. It'll yes. be free. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be amazing. amazing. Yeah. It's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to that. You know, okay, I'm, I'm so, almost thinking, you know, you guys really should have done a Kickstarter for that. <laughs> yeah. No kid. That's right? interesting now. Like why not do one? You know, yeah. it helps you, helps you, you know, even if it was buzz. you know just sort of a modest one. You know, it's like, yeah, five bucks, you get the PDF. You know, we're not going to do a print run unless it gets, like, outrageously big. But, you know, that way they can just kind of defer some of the costs of art and stuff. Because a lot of work went into that. Well, no kidding. And, and you know, at the very least, uh, you know, why not uh, have it submitted through and, and be a monograph? Mm-hmm. A Chaosia monograph. Interesting, you know, do, sounds so. like, yeah, yeah, whatever they want to do, it's interesting choices. Uh, I'm certainly not going to uh, say no to a free yeah. scenario and set up by, uh, by Jeff and Dean. So awesome. Yeah. And the next up, we've got Shadowbound, which is a uh, web series that looks like it's got kind of the production value of something produced by. Uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and that is now a free uh, series that you can watch over on the uh, on the YouTubes. Yes, the interwebs. Um, I I personally have not had a chance to watch it yet, uh, but it it looks like it could be black and white silent, but it, for sure it's shot in black and white. But it looks just from the stills. And the advertisements that I've been seeing for this, it looks so cool. I, I can't wait till I've got some time to sit down and dig into this. Because uh, I saw they have a teaser trailer, but then I also saw the episodes themselves are, uh, looks like could be half hour long on each. So I've got to have some time set aside where I can watch that. Episode one's a little shy at 20 minutes long. So it looks like they, you know, this is going to be a pretty substantial fiction. This is pretty cool. And I think there's at least five parts, so nice, so pretty good. It looks it looks pretty awesome. Yeah, and we should say that we've we've been joined by another keeper. And I'm Keeper Chad. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> What's up, Chad? In today's topics, we've. Oh, <laughs> Too late. Sound the wah wah. 
Oh, that's uh, Price is Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. This is a wow. great sound. It is. And an update went out to backers of the Call of Cthulhu 7th edition Kickstarter, and the PDF proof copies have been released. Dun dun dun! Yep, now backers can take a look through, you know, what it is that's coming down the pike for uh, both the Keeper's Guide and the Player's Book. Nice. Man, they look good, too. (laughs) Yeah, these are pretty. I am super excited for this, so I've been thumbing through them a little bit at a time, but man, they look good. Yeah, the Keeper Book is just massive. We're over 400 pages. So it's huge. Yeah, that that is going to be definitely one of the uh, the books that'll be a killer. Like, stop a bullet, kill a person. I mean, that thing is just going to be huge, thick, and it'll be hardcover. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. My hardcover book here for previous edition, uh, that's 287 pages. Yeah. So what, what do we think? I mean, there can't be that much more rules text, right? Well... I think the format of the book, the layout, has part of it because there's a lot of large format art. Okay. Yeah. Is the font lots of charts and graphs and things to kind of help make sense of stuff? That's good. I've heard some complaints about the sixty um, layout reference-wise. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. In in sixth edition, they had like all the pages had like the burned edge look and and then some of the the pages had like a burned hole in the page you know mm-hmm. and yeah, i found that read. oh mm-hmm. i found that so hard to read then there's nothing like that in in the new books and i think that's great everything just it just it pops it's readable it looks great uh you know every chapter is a two page color artwork spread you know for mm-hmm. each chapter you know, notification or, you know, here's the new chapter kind of thing. Just amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah. What, what do you guys, what do you guys think about the decisions they made on omitting things like the Call of Cthulhu story? It's not mm-hmm. in the uh, core book or the omission of, uh, the haunting as a, as a inbound scenario in the core rule book, you know, cause I do realize it's available in the, free PD or the free quick start, but it was, it's always been in the core book since inbound in print since first edition. I, I own a first edition and a second edition. Um, and it's in my first edition, Oh, but it's, it's the haunted, it's the haunted house. Hmm. Nope. Uh, Hold on. I'll, I have that within arm's reach. So hold on just for a second. Well, I feel kind of mixed about it. I would say. Okay. Feel like, it's, they needed the space. Here's my first edition. I've got one of the box sets that's like the, uh, the inch and a half thick box set. Here's the first edition rule book. And let's see. We have, here it is, the haunted house. And there's the Corbett house map. And we've got other scenarios in here too. The madman, the Brockford house, which is pretty much a dungeon crawl. So those are the three inbound scenarios. So 
Yeah, the haunted house or the haunting, it's been in every edition. Okay. And it's been upgraded for 7th, it's just not in the core book, because you can see in 6th and previous, with the quick starts, it always seemed kind of redundant, that if you get the free quick start, and then you bought the book, you're just getting a repeat of the same thing you got in the quick start. True. And True. And, so. and it's not, it's not, you know, like you said, it's not gone. It's mm-hmm. in the quick start, but it's just not, it's not inbound in the, in the core, you know, physical book. And I'm yeah. like, wow, what? I mean, that was, and I'm sure that was not an easy choice. I'm sure they, they labored on, you know, going, oh my gosh, we're, we're getting, you know, half a billion pages in this thing. We got to start <laughs> cutting some stuff. So, yeah, I feel mixed about it. I feel, I feel mixed about, um, getting rid of the, the Call of Cthulhu story because I really appreciate the connection between the literature and this game. And a lot of people play the game, but are not familiar with the literature or it, it, and this possibly makes it more, uh, more easy to, to lose that. But, uh, it's also kind of, you could see it as padding because it's free yeah. public domain material. It fills out pages. Um, it also makes the book heavier. In all my years, I never once read it. I always just <laughs> skipped that part. Yeah, I've read it not in a not in the rule book. Like I don't yeah. think I'm going to open a rule book to to read Lovecraftian fiction. And but that's me. And Dunwich Horror is in the player's guide. Yes. Yep. The investigator guide. The investigator handbook has Dunwich Horror. That's a good choice. Yeah, yeah that, is that choice. actually feels much more like a uh, Call of Cthulhu scenario than pretty much any of the other standard Lovecraft uh, works. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. There's an investigation and it ends in a gunfight. That's <laughs> almost every Call of Cthulhu game, right? Mm-hmm. It's an investigation that ends in a gunfight. <laughs> yeah, and the, with the with the dropping of the haunting, I think I've, I've aired my heretical notion that the haunting is not my favorite. But uh, I also respect the tradition. So, again, I feel mixed about dropping it because I guess because it's a new rule set and there's there are a lot of changes here. I I worry about the choice to drop the haunting for other people because it is, you know, yet again, a change that might be controversial in a miasma of controversy. So, sure. Well, you know, I'm mixed on it, too. Uh, I'm. Like, I have a brand new gaming group that I'm meeting with weekly, and we've only so far had three game sessions, uh, and I'm running them through The Haunting. Uh, but The Haunting, as written, is kind of bland, I thought. I, I've never, never liked the uh, the house floor plan. It just did not read to me as a house floor plan. It It might barely read as a floor plan to... Uh, maybe a, a brownstone building, you know, where where it's mm-hmm. you know really re- uh, narrow, rectangular, and and you know it's it's slapped up with a bunch of other uh, brownstones, you know, right up against it. But the the description of the house is clearly that it's a a, a standalone, you know, single family home, and so that floor plan has never read well for me. Uh, so for my group, as I'm running the haunting. Uh, Dan, I actually used that uh, book of house floor plans that you made available recently. Mm. I 
I picked a floor plan that I liked from that, and uh, I numbered uh, different rooms in it to, to, to key up with some of the room numbers of the uh, of the floor plan from the book. And I've added rooms like a, there's there's I've added an attic instead of you know just having mm-hmm. two stories in the basement. Uh, I've added an attic, and and uh, I also beefed up the uh, the scenario itself because as as it's written, it talks about how back in the day the neighbors had an issue with uh, uh, Corbett and the uh, chapel of contemplation due to some missing children. Well, I've decided to to pump that up, and I, I started kind of adding a ghost element to the uh, scenario uh, itself as well. So now my players are are uh, seeing ghosts throughout throughout the scenario, and they're they're these children and everything. It's really I'm I'm trying to make it as creepy as possible, but uh, they seem to be having fun. And actually, one of my players who just joined, you know, he's uh, Scriven, mm-hmm. uh, but Scriven joined, so so he's having a good time too. Cool, awesome, wow. And so if you're a backer, you know, you've got the notice in your email, go grab it, take a look, and we'll be able to talk to Mike this coming week and uh, you know get his take on why certain decisions were made and and. We have a thread up on the uh, campus forums for if you see typos and that sort of thing in there, then go in and put it down in there. So that way Mike can get that stuff all squashed before it goes to the printers. And we've been getting some great eyes on these PDFs already. Uh, those threads uh, for the uh, for the uh, details, you know, if you see any typos or anything in those uh, PDFs, they're already starting to fill up. And so people are, are doing some great detailed uh, viewings and readings of these PDFs. So, you know, awesome. So, what is going on with Gen Con? It's going to be very, very soon now. Oh my gosh. Man, man. I cannot wait. And we've got a couple of things that uh, have been updated. There's a company called Umba, O-O-M-B-A that they're going to be at Gen Con, and they will be broadcasting the entire convention live on their websites. So Umba.tv and Umba.com. So if you can't make it to the con, then hit these websites, and you'll probably be able to see some various you know bits and pieces of it that they're filming. And they have some sort of a tournament organization software, and so they're running the uh, Settlers of Catan National Championships using that, along with uh, some other games. And they're using that software to organize their attempt at breaking the world record of the largest tournament of rock, paper, scissors. Which I don't know if that would even qualify, because what they're using is rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock. Ah, rock on. That sounds like a lot of fun. I don't know if Guinness would even take that, because it's not actually rock, paper, scissors anymore. (laughs) Exactly. But couldn't it be another category, a new category? They could establish a new one. Mm -hmm. Why not? But that's, you know, something for folks that aren't going to be able to be at the con. You know, you can pop in there and see what's being shown. I have no idea as to how they're going to be doing that. You know, if it's me, people with portable camera rigs or in a one spot or no idea. Hmm. And uh, Warpo, the company that just put out the 
Legends of Cthulhu action figure line, they are going to be holding a panel at Gen Con on Sunday morning. Huh. Awesome. Did that get added late? Just find that out? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Only in the last week or so. So, you know, you can take a look at the uh, prototypes and talk to them about the whole production of it. And so, yeah, they're uh, geeks like us and they're in, they, they're gamers too. So you can go out there and actually I, see what the figures look like. I loved the interview that you had with them. And it just sounds like they're, they're such uh, fans of old school 70s cartoons, 80s cartoons of, you know, the toy lines that went with them. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, that's, that's my wheelhouse. That's what I grew up with. You know, I love it. Yeah. Love it. Can't wait to go. I just heard them on the podcast Gweek, which is the Boing Boing podcast. Oh. And they're over there talking about the, uh, the whole series. Cool. Yeah. And for anybody out there that's maybe this, their first time going to Gen Con, one thing to make a note of is that whenever you signed up for going into the free seminars, those require tickets too. So make sure and stop by the will call table and pick up your tickets to get into the uh, the free panels like ours. Because those of us running panels were required to collect tickets and turn them in and all that sort of thing. So that's just kind of a thing that I didn't even realize last year. I figured I'd be able to just kind of walk into them and it'd be fine. And if I had tried, I would have been basically stopped and asked for my uh, ticket to get into the panel. That's a good uh-huh. tip. That's a really good tip. I uh, I was not aware of that because, you know, this is going to be my first Gen Con. Um, so, yeah, I need to make sure I get uh, some uh, tickets. Not that, you know, but do you know how much those tickets are? Or They're the free they're ones usually that free. you're getting on the website. Oh, oh they're Whenever free. Whenever you okay. sign up for a panel on the website, that gets you... You know, it goes through the full purchase process, but it's free. And what about, are generic tickets free? No, no, those you pay no. for. I have no idea okay. what they cost. They're not much, but you can get more of those at the con. You don't have to buy those in advance on the website like you do the panels. And then, is this a dumb question? Can you use generic tickets to go to panels, to, to a free panel? I think that's up to the panel uh, holders. Okay. You know, All right. I don't think that'd be a problem. You can use the generics to do pretty much anything as long as there's space. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure generics are fine for panels. Is there but, a cutoff? I mean, since there's internet, can you just at the con sign up for a ticket if there are tickets left for a free event? I would think so. Yeah. But okay. since this is only my second Gen Con, and last year I had signed up for a bunch of panels and didn't actually make it to go to a single one of them. Oh, no. So... I didn't even realize about the whole needing a ticket thing until this year when I was being notified of this stuff as a panel host, being told to make sure to collect the tickets and turn them in and all that stuff. That's when I realized, oh, well, I wouldn't have been able to get into any of those last year anyway. You had just written them down for interest but hadn't gotten any tickets. Yeah, I had had purchased them on the website, but I thought it just put me on a list to get into it. I didn't realize right. I had to actually pick up bounce- physical tickets at the will call table. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the the bouncer was going to let you through. Oh, you're on the list. Come on. In. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> but, yeah, there's that's, that's actual what I tickets be. you got to get. I want to be a Gen Con bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the will call counter is open 24 hours. So even though at the beginning of the show it's going to be, you know, this ridiculous line, 
just give it a little time, and there were plenty of times I walked past it when there was nobody. Awesome. So, Well, at some point before Sunday at 9 a.m., I will definitely hit the will call counter, and uh, I'm going to sign up for uh, for this event, and I'll, I'll get my tickets. So, cool. Yeah. And so we're we're getting prepped up and ready to head out to the con. We got uh, some of us driving. John's flying. I think uh, Murph is flying now. We're yeah. I'm hitchhiking. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll get a, right. a, uh, a a bloody trash bag full of bits of Chad. Yeah. <laughs> Riding the hobo highway. Yeah. We'll have to reduce the uh, remains to their essential salts and hope it's all there. Yeah. Just put me in a chair. And a microphone. Yep. Uh-huh. I'll, uh, I'll astral project my comments. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what kind of preparations are y'all going through to uh, get ready for Gen Con? I just, I packed all my clothes, uh, which include a lot of graphic tees. <laughs> yes, but aren't you running games at Gen Con? What? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you know? Daisy. What do you know that I don't know? Yeah, no, I'm running a bunch of uh, playtests, so I've been boning up on my Savage Worlds um, rules, which uh-huh. you know we're we're doing a pretty uh, fast and fast and easy light kind of encounters thing. So, but that's that's my one of my main preps. I'm not running a scenario otherwise, not in any official way. Although I'm bringing things in my back pocket in case we have room time. Cool. Um, cool. And since you specialize but, in Cthulhu uh, Dark, that as literally it can just be the whole thing in your back pocket. Yeah, I've got two Cthulhu Dark scenarios that I can pull out of my brains without uh, without any trouble. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm doing. I've, Sweet. I've been doing a lot of uh, panicking, um, <laughs> a lot of worrying, um, a lot of emails all over the place, trying to coordinate, a lot of um, uh, doubting, and uh, just uh, general uh, frantic uh, chaos, trying to keep myself from curling up into a ball in a corner. <laughs> so, nice. as it's, expected, it's like if e- <laughs> you should cosplay as Eeyore. So, <laughs> <laughs> your preparation is: what are you doing? Checklist one: doubt myself. Two. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, what are you doing? Getting ready for Gen Con. <laughs> yeah, I'm not depressed. I'm just kind of um, uh, terrified and frantic. I'm sure, I'll be fine. Once mostly I get about there. the live. Yeah, yeah. Mostly about the live show. Yeah. The it's live show, the game I'm running. Sure. Thursday right. Night. Yeah, I've got a lot of prep to do on that yet. You know, my uh, yeah. My busy full work weeks have been kind of difficult to get some of this background stuff uh, <sighs> taken care of. Uh. I, I I can hear and feel your pain on that. You know, mm-hmm. I spent, unfortunately, I spent most of July hospitalized. I, I had a terrible skin infection, but it put me way behind on my, on my work at, at my real job. And so now that I've been back at work, it's just been, you know, full on game on trying to get caught up and get everything, you know, back up to, to par as to where it was beforehand. So I've been spending so much time doing that. It has actually impacted my ability to, to get other, um, you know, Lovecraftian type of stuff done and do the, the work that I actually really enjoy, you know? 
Um, but I have gotten to the point where I think I am just about ready for all of the games that I'm going to run. I'm definitely ready for the Age of Cthulhu uh, scenarios that I'm going to be running. I'm running Transatlantic Terror twice, and I'm running Starfall over Plateau of Lang twice, and I've got everything I need for all that character sheets, handouts, you know, I've got copies of, of the scenarios to reference. I've got everything I need for that. And then my Saturday night uh, MUP game that I'm going to run, the only thing I have to do is finish the uh, pre-gens that I'm going to make available for you guys. But that shouldn't take too long. Other than that, I think I'll finally be done. I uh, I, <laughs> use, I use the uh, the work uh, printer and, and buzzed off a bunch of uh, photocopies. So, so. Thank you, work, for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. So, well, we're almost there. We'll see you guys at the con. And episode 63 is going to be recorded on Friday afternoon. Gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be missing that because of the uh, the games I need to run. But if people want to uh, see me, you know, please try and join in on one of the games that I'm running. Or I am going to be working at the... Uh, Goodman Games booth, both on Thursday afternoon and on Sunday morning. So I'll be, I'm scheduled to be there at the booth on those days. So please stop by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if I may throw in, uh, again, if you want to stop by and play a little Savage Worlds in a sort of, uh, South Pacific, Polynesian, South, um, Southeast Asian world, uh, that's, 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on Friday and Saturday, and also Saturday from 1 to 3 in the First Exposure Playtest Hall, right in your registration. Awesome. Oh, and also, I uh, wanted to let folks know that I had set up a Twitter account specifically for the podcast at uh, Gen Con, and uh, that account is M-U-P-G-C. And so... All of us are going to have access to that to post on it, and I've got it set to auto-follow anybody that uh, joins up to it. So, any um, basically, I, on my phone, I have it set up where one of the pages on my operating system is nothing but that Twitter stream. So, hopefully, we'll be able to coordinate us and listeners to be able to just kind of you know, hey, there's something cool going on over here sort of thing. Or, you know, hey, our seminar starts in 10 minutes. You know, we're at this hotel and room. Get on over here. That sort of thing. <laughs> Everyone. Yes. <laughs> 2000. <laughs> Go now. So, you know, that's, you know, just something I set up to hopefully be able to organize things a little better. So it's M at M-U-P-G-C. And that way I'm not also... Is we got a good amount of followers on our regular Twitter account. I didn't want to wind up spamming them with Gen Con stuff for all these days. Cool. So. Yeah, at mention us. We'll find you. Yep. Yep. I want to try and meet as many listeners as possible. Definitely. And we've got a couple of uh, listener uh, emails in. First one here is from a fellow podcaster named uh, hmm. Modrigan. He says, hey there, uh, Modrigan here from the Cult of Cult. Tea and Dice dot net. <laughs> so, and that's from the Cult of Tea and Dice uh, podcast. Just dropping a quick line to say I'm really enjoying your actual play of masks, although it's making me worried about my uh, planned 
Horror on the Orient Express campaign when it gets released. I was intended <laughs> on having each player roll three characters, but may increase that to five. Uh, <laughs> That's probably not a bad idea. Yeah. You ever find that it's difficult to get player buy-in for the uh, horror elements in Cthulhu? In the past, I've had some groups and ran one who tried to turn it into a pulp action game. This usually results in the expected death and mayhem, but tends to be uh, destructive to leads and PCs, for example, leaping from a window to land crotch first on an iron railing. No. Then <laughs> derails campaigns. So we got a couple things there. We got the multiple characters for a campaign. I advise going with the organization route. You know, that just, it it really does make it easier to bring in people that already know what's going on and makes more sense than, oh, well, the bellboy happens to be, you know, an ex-veteran who's interested in helping these weird foreigners. Yeah, so when you say organization, you mean that the uh, the investigators belong to a group, uh, you know, like the Masons, uh, that kind of thing, the Rotary Club, or... Uh, as as you've created the uh, mis- uh, Miskatonic Area Paranormal Society, yeah, that kind of thing. Make them all affiliated in some manner, yeah. and it doesn't have to be anything where they've been, you know, friends since childhood. But it, if they know each other in some manner, you can just kind of have them where replacement characters are always perpetually on their way to arrive and. Hmm their boat just actually shows up at the point of when somebody kicks off. So that's that's the easiest way I've found of doing that. And I guess with Horror on the Orient Express, you can have them waiting at a station. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, just say that they were going to be joining up with the group anyway, and it yeah. just, they wound up joining up after somebody had previously been killed. So yep. there's a little bit of catch-up for the character, but for the most part, they were already aware of the general goings-on. Then there's the getting player buy-in for horror. Yeah, that can just be, I mean, that can definitely be a difficult aspect. And it, it there's a multitude of things that can, uh, that can be uh, roadblocks to buy-in for the horror elements. Um, if you're playing around the table, you know, it could be the fact that someone has their cell phone out. If you're playing at a convention setting, it could just be the ambient noise and all the other people around you if you're in a public space. Um, and it could just be uh, the fact that some players have a difficult time immersing themselves into the, uh, into the scenario, regardless of the, of the, uh, of the work that the keeper is doing. So, you know, I don't know if this is an aspect that the keeper should, you know, I don't know if this is an albatross that the keeper should put around their neck, you know, that, that, oh, I'm not doing a good job or anything like that. Just, you know, as keeper, invoke the horror to the best of your ability and then present it in, in, in a manner in which the players are hopefully going to be receptive to. And if they're receptive, great. And if they're not, you know, I mean, it is a two-way street. You have to, the players have to kind of meet you halfway, I think. Does anybody feel different about that? Well, yeah, no, I, you, there, you have to accept that there are things out of your control. You know, you do your best and then, and then you, you shouldn't beat yourself up if, um, if somebody takes it off the rails. And, and it's a fragile thing to keep going. So it takes not much effort to 
unravel that mood, you know, to violate that, that, that kind of, uh, horror feel. If you've got one player or two players that are just not buying into that. Um, one, one thing I was going to say, I think I've said it before, but I like to ask for players to get buy-in, ask players to contribute some details of the horror so that we understand we're all telling a horror story together as opposed to the antagonistic model, which I think doesn't work quite so well for buy-in where I, you are against me who is sending foes at you. That's more of puts it in a, uh, you know, kind of a sports kind of mentality where, yeah. um, like done, you know, like dungeons crawls can be right. I've made this mm-hmm. awesome dungeon. See if you can beat it. Um, sure. you know, and in a way, the investigation is like, I've made an investigation or I've, I've, you know, got a published one, see if you can crack it. But, um, as far as mood, I think asking for details, first of all, in their characters, you know, asking leading questions like what, what, you know, dark burden is this character carrying or what, you know, get, get them to start thinking in horror terms rather than heroic kind of big terms and ask for details along the way that are horror details. Oh my God, that's awful. What, you know, how does he react to that? Oh geez. You know, what's tell me what freaks him out about that. That kind of thing. No, that's, those are great points. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm running a new, uh, game, uh, with, you know, some players, a, a weekly, uh, game and we're, we're running through the haunting, uh, cause my players, most of them are brand new, not only to Call of Cthulhu, but also to role playing as a, as a, as a game. So there's a, there's a learning curve that's going on. One of the things that I'm doing is uh, to try and invoke horror and try and get buy-in from the players is I'm also trying to do my best to emulate scenes and tropes from horror movies, uh, that I've, that I personally like. Uh, so, uh, in the haunting, I've kind of introduced some ghosts, uh, you know, a ghostly element to it. And, uh, in our last game, uh, one of the characters, uh, who's a, uh, who's playing a medical doctor, um, uh, went out onto the front porch of the house to have a smoke, uh, as the other players were doing an investigation in the house. So I thought, okay, this sheep has, has walked alone and, and culled himself from the herd. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to play with this guy. So I tried to do some, some movie tropes that I, that I'd seen that I thought might be interesting, uh, as related with ghosts. So out of the corner of his eye, far peripheral vision, he sees movement. And as he looks at the, uh, at the end of the, of the porch that he's on, where the porch meets up against the house. And so it just kind of, you know, the very last half second, he thinks he sees the back of a person's head and shoulders as they're walking down the, uh, down the side of the house, you know, with almost like their shoulder is brushing up against the house. And he just barely saw that person. And the house is fairly rectangular in shape where it's, it's, uh, you know, the short ends are at the front and back of the house and the long sides of the rectangle are the two sides of the house. So for him to, to cross the width of the, of the porch to then look down the side of the house, it took him only two seconds where if, if a person is walking down the side of the house, it would take, you know, a minute for them to reach the very back end of the house. So he, he takes those two seconds to walk to the end of the porch and he, he, pokes his head out to look down the length of the house to see, hey, who's this person who's walking 
uh, outside the house. But he doesn't see a person. What he does see is at the far end of the house, he again sees that last half second of, of, some, of the back of someone's head and the back of their shoulders as they disappear behind the back side of the house, which is impossible. There's no way a person could have been right there at the front of the house and then suddenly at the back of the house in the two seconds it took him to cross the porch to look down. So I, I gave him a, a sanity roll for that, like, whoa, that, that wasn't, that's not possible. And he was successful. He lost zero sand. He goes, okay. So then he decides to return to the front door and I said, okay, so as you, as you stop looking down the side of the house and you turn and now you're, you're, you know, going to return to the front door, there's a, there's a little girl in front of you. Uh, she's probably, you know, 10 years old. She's soaking wet from head to toe and covered in mud. And she's got almost no color to her. She, she almost looks like a, a black and white, uh, image. And, uh, uh, she's got these, you know, full black eyes and she reaches up and lightly touches a hand to her, to your chest. And that was enough of an impact to propel him backwards off the porch onto the hood of the car that was parked outside and roll off onto the dirt. And, uh, so he had a sand check from that, took damage from that. And then as the end result, as he's face down in the dirt, there's this, uh, voice in his head that says, find me. And as he looks back up on the porch, she's not there. So I tried to, to kind of bring that, you know, the ring, you know, kind of girl into it. So nice. Yeah. So just be, be evocative in your imagery and in the kinds of, uh, scenes that you're trying to, uh, uh, describe. Use evocative language, that kind of thing. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then the last bit that he's got in there is how, also, how do you deal with characters dying with important information? Yeah, well, try not to limit, try not to produce a, a choke point by giving only one character key information that everybody has to have. And um, and make sure that all the information isn't necessarily verbal, that they spoke to somebody. If you have things like handouts, well, their friends can then, you know, find right. that and uh, continue things on. And I'm not beyond a little um, retconning if you say, again, at maybe asking a leading question, what did that character leave behind that your new character found? Or, you know, what what evidence of their investigation did they leave? I mean, it's a leading question because mm -hmm. you're assuming there is one. Yeah, <laughs> but sure. You know, I think most groups will <laughs> certainly allow a little retconning just to kind of keep things smooth. And that's one that keeps it in the fiction. Yeah, um, that, that's yeah. that's better than them writing in a journal their last you know breath of they're coming to get me. Arg. That hand, that hand, <laughs> yeah. that arm. It, it's very Lovecraftian, but it also doesn't make a lot of sense. So, yeah, although. I had a character go insane once, and his the insanity we picked for him was autographia. Oh. So he was, yeah, so he was writing everything that was happening down as though it was in the past. And I thought, man, this character just created a, a Lovecraftian narrative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just couldn't help himself but to just write down everything. Exactly. That's kind of cool. But I took a look over at the website for the Cult of Tea and Dice, and they cover a lot of different role-playing games. They've got some actual plays on there. 
the link will be in the show notes. Go check them out. Awesome. Then we've got another email from uh, Gareth, and uh, he's uh, emailing from, as he calls, the Great Kingdom of the Zulus. Uh, he is, I believe, the person that we spoke to previously who was doing scenarios based in South Africa. Oh, Hear wow. That or we've oh, got more than cool. one okay. listener. I didn't look up the, the name for the previous person. Sorry about that. But uh, he is, uh, let's see, he's working on writing up his first scenario. And he says, I've got quite far in planning the plot and laying the game out inside my head. I've got a few notes and I'm going to do my first play test next week. Uh, looking forward to, to it as, as the first thing I've come across in a set of historical South African setting. Flintlock rifles, sabers, leopards, and ox wagons. Oh, insanity blasting monsters. Can't forget about them. Uh, <laughs> however, the question is, do you guys have a particular method or framework that you follow when actually putting words onto paper for a scenario? And he's looking to even potentially get this thing published when he's done, granted that everything goes well. Uh, he, you know, from reading other scenarios, uh, it seems that they're divided into player information and keeper information, but he's not sure if this is the correct approach or if it's just a personal preference. Uh, you know, if it's only organized at publication time or if you start with this framework right from the beginning. You know, he's used to prose, but this is a considerably different type of structuring so yeah writing up a scenario i kind of use the framework of background history and you know breaking it up into pieces from the get-go mm-hmm. yeah yep make, make an outline and and you can just steal one there are so many that you're, i think you're on the right track there reading other scenarios and looking at what the headings mm-hmm. are and just m- make those headings and start filling in the blanks um, and they're all di- organized differently. You might find one suits you better. Some are like divided into acts as opposed to scenes. Some are by location instead of, of by like a, a linear event, chronological event scale. Yep. Yep. And so if you wanted to, if the, if the end goal is to maybe submit this for publication, think ahead to the publisher that you want to submit to. Uh, let's, let's say Chaosium. Look at Chaosium's published scenarios and do your best to mimic that model the way that uh this those scenarios are broken up uh with the types of of sections mimic that that format and write to that format and if you want to have it submitted to multiple publishers try and you know if necessary have a version of your manuscript that's formatted for each of those publishers uh, preferred formats or find a format that is as middle ground as possible to satisfy each publisher. I know when I write for Age of Cthulhu, there is a specific format that I need to follow, uh, to, for it to be a Age of Cthulhu, uh, published scenario. And that scenario, that format is different than say what I might write for a, a chaosium uh, scenario, or just for my own uh, personal or, or uh, for the podcast, that type of scenario. Um, I have uh, a scenario that I recently wrote uh, for the podcast for our Indiegogo campaign, and the formatting on it is more akin 
to what I might have seen or what I do see in like the uh, Golden Goblin Press and um, uh, the old Miskatonic River Press, those book formats, than what I do for Age of Cthulhu. Uh, my Age of Cthulhu stuff has a totally different format. So, so yeah, you're you're on the right track. Mimic exactly the types of of uh, adventure formats and models that you enjoy, and mm-hmm. and go with that. There is no wrong way to do this. Yeah, and the editor will come back if you pitch something. Actually, it's a good idea to write up a pitch as well, a one-page uh, summary mm-hmm. of of your thing, so that you can shop that around. Because generally, sending a fully fledged um, editors like to be in on the process, uh, yes, and, and you usually benefit from it. <laughs> so it's uh, you know just sending a treatment, um, a summary of of who the foes are, what the what they start with, what the investigators are going to do. Um, who they are and what, what they're going to be doing in the first paragraph and um, send that around before sending in a fully fledged um, scenario. Yeah. And r- keep in mind that even though it's broken up into like keeper section and player section, the players aren't going to be reading the scenario. This is your target audience is the keeper for the scenario. So everything needs to be with them in mind and I always like whenever they, like with the Chaosium scenarios, where they start off with basically what would work as the pitch, where it just it gives an overall explanation of what the story's going to do, where it's planning to take the investigators, because then you can get a good idea whether or not this will even fit your group. And then it'll go into more detailed histories and stuff for uh, background. But yeah. Like John said, you know, just read lots of scenarios and pick a, a format that you like. You know, I think something like this would potentially be really good as a monograph. So take a look at some Chaosium monographs. Absolutely. Yeah, they could use a South Africa monograph. For yeah, sure. that would be great. I, I want to see what you come up with. So mm-hmm. I mean, legitimately, I would I would love to see see what you have and maybe even playtest. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, keep us informed on what you're doing, Gareth. Please. For our Cryptocurium spot this episode, uh, one thing I wanted to point out is that if you're on the email list, you got to notice that Cryptocurium is going to have a one-day sale on August 20th, which is Lovecraft's birthday, and the store is going to be 50% off. Mm. Wow, nice. The whole store? Yeah, website-wide, oh 50% off sale, and wow. a limited edition item only available for that day. So August 20th, take a look and uh, see what he's got. Knitted Cthulhu scarf. Is that the... Yeah, that's another thing that I uh, put in here just as because this is something with an actual link that there's a... uh, Remember last year, actually, he was offering these for a little while that he's got a, a knitted scarf that has Cthulhu at each end and then it has the words Cthulhu Photogen uh, in the middle, and he's doing pre-orders. So you can get nice. yourself a uh, a pre-order for a scarf and ready for the uh, coming winter season. Mm-hmm. Nice. It, that, that scarf is so cool. It, it looks like uh, vestments. Yeah. You know? um, I, I think it would be really cool to be wearing that as you're keeping a game. I think that would be really neat. Mm-hmm. I could also see somebody using that as like part of uh, 
like a costume or something, maybe for next year's Necronomicon. Mm-hmm. Just have that draped across the shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just it's so for me it's so invocative of vestments. I can see it as someone as dressed as a high priest for the uh, Order of Dagon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the way he's displayed it there kind of is is suggestive of that for sure. Paper and pencil. It's time for your side topic. And for the side topic, we've got a uh, an email that came in a couple weeks ago. That this was, you know, fairly lengthy, but it had a lot of questions in there. We'd like to take a little time on. So the uh, email starts off. Uh, yeah, keepers. I'm listed as the storyteller on the forums. Just joined up yesterday. Welcome. I am truly impressed by the excellent high quality podcast you guys do. Thank you. Although I've been playing and running games for many years, I wanted to ask a few questions, get your opinions. Uh, first off, do you guys prefer storyteller, keeper of arcane lore, or something more contemporary like GM, DM, etc.? It largely depends on the game. I'm perfectly happy with just Keeper for Call of Cthulhu, because the yep, I love Keeper. Keeper of Arcane Lore is the proper title for the Game Master for this particular game. And most games have some sort of a specific title. For pretty much anything other than Cthulhu, I just go with GM. Yeah, I like the tradition of Keeper. I'm, uh, I like the title. Mm-hmm. Each of those, they're all sort of crafted to tell you a little bit about how the GM role changes, right? So Keeper of Arcane Lore is really very much about you're sort of the master of the mythos. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it tips tips the players and, and the Keeper that there is secret information in this game. That's what it's about. Yeah. And it, it just, each of the games that comes out that has some special title for the game master and the players, they're trying to invoke a mood and to mm-hmm. kind of, you know, give you a feel for how this relationship between the GM and players is going to work. You know, for this, we've got the Keeper of Arcane Lore and we've got Investigators. They're not just player characters. Right. And that tells you generally what the relationship is going to be. You've got the person who has the arcane lore, and you've got the other people investigating it. It's right there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I also think these titles shouldn't get in the way. They, I, there's no need to correct someone yeah, <laughs> when exactly. they say, when they say GM. GM is a blanket term, and I often use it when I'm talking about various games. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's the one I use most know. commonly. Yeah, I mean, I might even call a Call of Cthulhu uh, the say a GM if we're ta- like comparing systems yeah, or something exactly. like that, rather than to try to remember exactly. Yeah, GM is the broad spectrum term that I'll use for most other games. You know, I have heard on many a show where people will just use DM as their generic term, which I. I shy away from because, well, one, I've never played enough D&D to really get that ingrained into me. You know, uh-huh. for me, GM is the generic term. But, yeah, GM, it's a generic for me as well, but I, I prefer Keeper for Call of Duty. Yeah. You know, especially for something like what we're doing on the show here. It just, it works nicely to have as a title, you know, as as hosts of the show. Uh-huh. Although for people outside of our community, it looks really strange that I've got an email that's Keeper Dan, and they're just kind of like, uh, I don't even know you. How do I know if you're a keeper? That's just right. <laughs> what, are you, what are you keeping yeah. in your basement? Yeah, that, that part <laughs> gets a little odd, but oh well. 
And then he continues with the email. Secondly, I've been inspired by things around me uh, with ideas for game scenarios, characters, events, etc. Uh, lately, my muse has been struck by an anime, Full Metal Alchemist. Given the story and elements within the series, it's easy to see several classic themes of horror, and indeed Lovecraftian horror as well, despite the source being an animated program. My question in this case is, what are some of the most unexpected sources of inspiration for horror gaming, particularly Call of Cthulhu? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a good one to give kind of other people an idea of, you know, you can pay attention to almost anything for potential bits and pieces. I have a thing I'm working on um, that uh, will be uh, more uh, fully talked about and announced at the uh, Goodman Games, uh, what's new at Goodman Games Con panel at Gen Con. But uh, the genesis for this idea came from one of my son's uh, books as I was, you know, reading uh, different uh, books to him. Um, so out of, out of a, a book that was designed for kids, I ended up getting an idea for, oh, I, I could twist this into a, something, uh, Lovecraftian. So I'll, I'll get more into that at the, uh, at the Gen Con panel. Uh, but yeah. So yeah, you can get, uh, inspiration from anywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, it's really easy to draw even just like a character personality. I can't remember what it was on. I think it was a, a cartoon I was watching years ago that there was a character that I saw on there. I wrote him down just as a basic description and I haven't used him yet, but I will someday that there was a character in a cartoon named Alphonse and he was a, um, like a hospital intern and he was kind of sadistic and, you know, just kind of an ass. And I just wrote down Alphonse, the sadistic intern. Someday <laughs> that'll come into play. Um, Mm-hmm. For the uh, Serenity game that I ran, I actually used the uh, miniseries uh, North and South as a, a lot of inspirations for bits and pieces. And, you know, it's you can draw characters of, you know, one type or another and a visualization and speech patterns and stuff from anything and then just drop it into a scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that was what I was going to say is that... Uh... For NPCs, I, I pull a lot of stuff from experience in the game, either, you know, floor plans for houses. I will pick, you know, the third house I lived in when I was growing up because um, mm-hmm. I remember where, where all the floorboards squeak and everything. You know, it's just easy recall. Um, and with NPCs, um, <laughs> I find that I draw on a lot of my high school teachers uh-huh. be- because... If I didn't mock them in some way, I know other people who did and who, you know, so you can recall a voice for them really easily. And so if you grew up being a smart ass like me, you start out by doing impersonations of your teachers who are, you know, usually the most interesting and strange teachers and throwing them. I've done that many a time, actually. So write down all your high school teachers and (laughs) draw (laughs) them into your Cthulhu games. Yeah, that's a great idea because you're being with that many kids for an extended period of time. It's going to make anybody a little eccentric. So, uh, you know, it's not uncommon (laughs) to find a a teacher that has kind of a an interesting, strong personality. Mm -hmm. And one thing we've discussed in the past is that 
role-playing game characters tend to be more or less caricatures. They're kind of, you know, broad versions of what a real person might be like. So, you know, don't be afraid to make them, you know, a little bit exaggerated to what you're likely to, to actually meet in person. Mm-hmm. I like using movie and TVs and stuff like that. Yeah, that works too. The re- Again, the recall is easy. You can also, in prepping for your game, you could go back and look at a setting that you're kind of basing your... Mm-hmm. Um, thing on yep there's a record if you've got you know specific actors for in mind for npcs you can always find pictures of them online printed out and say well you know this person looks like this i find looking at faces really works a lot yeah Yeah. if you have a face and you can just stare at that face while you're doing your you know acting out the npc to make them different from other npcs it just i don't know why that works but to me it just it evokes a voice and a tone really easily. Focus more on an individual character personality as an inspiration rather than something like, you know, trying to draw out the plot necessarily. Because if you draw something out that's the plot to something that has, that's recognizable, you say, oh, well, this is the plot to this movie that we're playing through. You know, that takes the players out. It, it doesn't work as well as if you just draw out a character type from something and then drop them in to the scenario it there they might be recognizable but that's okay because then the players have an idea of you know a good interaction with that character mm-hmm. uh-huh. you know and settings are good for that too you know find an interesting setting and then you know Use it as a start point for coming up with what kind of what kind of trouble can people get into in this type of setting, mm-hmm. be it generic or something extreme. But then uh, it continues on. Uh, thirdly, can you guys walk me through the techniques and processes you use in creating a complete campaign as opposed to a one shot or con game? My take on a campaign isn't necessarily like masks or orient express where it's one solid plot that keeps going i look at a campaign as being more like the um it's more like a television series where you can have lots of different stories that are connected by the primary protagonists going through these different stories and scenarios and adventures and that they are you know consistent in their knowledge of the previous stuff so something that feels more like a one shot is like a tv episode where it's all just rebooted back to where it was at the beginning and nothing really advances through a campaign is more like a show where everybody remembers everything that happened previously and it affects them Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and they can grow from mm-hmm. it, and there's benefit. There's benefit of that growth further as you get deeper into the campaign. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. My long campaign was not one specific plot that carried through. It was whatever scenario I thought they would have fun playing through, and so I dropped lots of different uh, published scenarios and and original stuff just onto the the plot line of these existing characters and then you know a couple of months later they might get some notices of uh things that had happened previously you know somebody might pop up again as an npc or you know i i really like seeding future stuff so i'll have Mm -hmm. 
you know, scenario seeds dropped in of where they'll find in one scenario, they'll find a lighter with somebody's initials and then they'll find out, uh, like, I don't know, three months later, player time, what those initials mean. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's a campaign to me. It's less heavily structured than if you're running, you know, something like Orient Express, which literally has a linear progression because, well, it's based on a train, you know, and Masks is not quite as linear because there's a wide range of potential destinations they can choose to check out. But it's still got kind of a limited scope of, you know, these are the destinations part of this plot line. You know, you've got, you know, six choices, but those are your choices. Unless you want to completely abandon the, the actual campaign. Which which does happen. Yep. Yeah, I would say I would say flexibility. If you're building a campaign for a specific group. If you're if you're building a campaign to try to publish, that is a completely different thing. Yeah. And frankly, I'm not sure that I I could tell you, um, other than to write in flexibility in the same way in your home game that you keep things fast and loose as far as the plot, being able to move locations, moving clues, uh, and that kind of thing. Because mapping it out from beginning to end is probably a good idea just so you have an idea of one way it could go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but but uh, improvising it, I mean, what I did in my campaign was actually listen for what the players were responding to and push the campaign further in that direction. I had an idea of who who I wanted as an overarching plot, you know, the sort of main foe, the main serious threat uh, among all the other little adventure threats. And um, so I could throw in little things here and there. But if they respond to an NPC, that NPC comes back. If they respond to a particular kind of creature, um, they might have... Um, it might go in a science fiction direction instead of the uh, supernatural direction that those two different flavors that Lovecraft have. So I just try to figure out what, what works and, and push it. Yeah. And in the email here, and lastly, what tips can you offer people who are new to running games, as well as experienced ones like myself, on balancing Monty Hall versus evil GM sessions? With the emphasis mm -hmm. on horror games such as Call of Cthulhu. Uh, what signs can you think of that say you're going too hard on players or that are having too easy of a time in a given adventure? Oh, yes. Signs. Yeah. You know, that's actually a, a good question because in Call of Cthulhu, it is really easy to become that stereotype reputation of everyone goes crazy and dies. And it, it you know, my character lasted a whole 10 minutes into the, into the uh, session. It, it, and... <sighs> I know that that's fun on occasion, mm -hmm. I think. But too often, if, if your reputation is that you're a killer GM, you know, a killer keeper, and, uh, you know, the players are going to go insane and they're going to die and, you know, evil wins. The other side of that coin is that the, the players are not uh, getting the full experience of, of unraveling the story and adventure that, that they're playing in. Uh, sure, they're bringing in, uh, replacement characters and, you know, they're doing that every other game session. But it, at some point, it just, I think it would become draining and stressful t for the players at a certain point where like, you know, I've got, uh, buy-in for this game, but how often, how many times do I need to do this buy-in where 
you know, I'm on my fifth or sixth character to complete this campaign yeah. or complete this, you know, mega scenario. I, I find that I think that that would be draining on a player. But at the same time, you don't want, I, I don't think you want to be a Monty Hall where, you know, oh, you, you just happen to find the, uh, the one and only spell that is going to, you know, skate you through the rest of this adventure. But, you know, so now everyone is completely afraid of you and, you know, you guys have all the most powerful weapons and the, you know, you're, you're loaded with, uh, magical Mego artifacts that, you know, allow you to get through everything. Um, you know, you could teleport here and there and open up a gate and, you know, that, that takes it away too. I mean, the players, I think, especially in Call of Cthulhu, want to have obstructions that, uh, that they have to overcome, whether it's, a uh, uh, something uh, mental that requires investigation and thought process, and I think something physical that uh, requires that they be stealthy or combative, or you know, or whatever. And it just there's I don't think there's an easy answer, and it takes it takes practice. You know, it takes uh, experience in being a keeper and and putting these roadblocks in front of your uh, uh, players and seeing how they how they react to it. And it'll take times where you go, Ooh, I probably should not have put uh, two dimensional shamblers in this area. You know, maybe, maybe they should only encounter one, you know, or maybe instead of dimensional shamblers, maybe it should have been ghouls. You know, that, that's the kind of uh, things that you need to ask yourself if you're designing your own scenario. Uh, hopefully those questions have already been asked and answered and play tested in uh, published scenarios, you know, so, yeah, every group is different and every individual player is different. And so, again, I would recommend listening because you can't really say there are hard and fast rules about how many deaths there there should be in a scenario. People, you know, people play masks and love to die, you know, love to have great deaths. And I think the, the key there is to have every death be a great death. Mm-hmm. You know, have 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 great scenes that are fun, that are that you have this table full of people nervously laughing about how how awful their second character died. Um, yeah, you know, those are th- those are stories that people take away from the table and remember. And you know, that's what Call of Cthulhu does that other games don't. And as far as giving, as far as the Monty Hall, it's sort of to me it fits a game where it's all about loot mm-hmm. more than it does Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu is just not about collecting stuff, uh, in, you know, or as far as big, powerful uh, magic items and, and armor and yeah. gold pieces. It's just not not like that. So it's less of a, an important dial, I think. Yeah, but I would argue knowledge is loot in Call of Cthulhu. It is. It is. But, you know, I've, and we've talked about how generous to be with knowledge. And I think the test there is if if it's a choke point give it away. Be Monty Hall, I guess, in, in sure. your, in your giving away of the plot and, you know, of the, um, the fun of, of the investigation continuing. And if there are spurs, um, like you've written, John, uh, where it doesn't affect the main plot, then, you know, you can be as generous or as miserly as you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if anybody's ever told Monty Hall that he's become a term. Right. <laughs> well, he can either have that truth uh, or what's hidden behind door number two. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's funny that it's become this thing that's lasted, right? I'm sure a lot of players nowadays have no idea. What have the no term idea. Means. Yeah, it's yeah, just it, it was term. kind of a dusty. Yeah, it was kind of a dusty reference even in the '80s because uh, I don't remember when it ended. But um, let's make a deal. Just you know, but it it didn't last into the '90s as far as I remember. Yeah, it it did and, uh, have episodes yeah. through the '80s, and now it's back on with um, yeah. Oh, Wayne Brady. Yeah. That's it. So yeah, Angry. the show is actually still on, and I found a nice link to a nineteen episode, nineteen eighty five episode with Monty Hall. So oh, that nice. way, if you're not familiar with what that term actually means, it's a person, and it's from the show Let's Make a Deal. And so if you think about that phrase in gaming terms, starting with a D and D mindset of I'll give you these uh, boots of flight. What are you going to give me in exchange with, you know, this scenario? Right. All right. I think of it also as like a dungeon mm -hmm. where you actually have doors on the left and right. And you say what's behind door number one is, you know, a treasure trove that uh, uh, that a dragon left behind. And what's behind, you know, door number two is, the dragon. Uh, you know, the gold. <laughs> right. Say. And for those players who may be completely unfamiliar because it predates them of what make a deal uh let's make a deal game show is uh it also has cosplay yeah <laughs> that's true yeah because that it all started out where people would come to the studio in costume in order to in colorful you know outrageous costumes in order to attract the attention of host monty hall and be selected to to be on the game yep and then it just it just became a thing you know and it still is so and that part's kind of cool and it still is. Yeah. So, yeah. A little bit of history on you for what the term actually means. But hopefully... Thank you for the email, Storyteller. Yeah, hopefully that's yeah, going to, you know, answer some of the stuff that you were uh, hoping for. And feel free to jump in on the forums with your own opinions. We're kind of ending up doing a lightning round, just like Ken and Ramit did. Settle down now, class. It's time for your next lesson. And for the main topic, we're going to take a look at uh, weaponry and firearms from the Call of Cthulhu point of view. Guns, guns, guns! Yeah! Click, click, boom. <laughs> and that's one of the things that in this game... I I really don't have that much familiarity with firearms. I was in ROTC in high school. I shot a rifle. I was pretty decent with it. That's about it. Never had any desire to own guns, but I have a fairly comfortable knowledge of a lot of the basics, at least the historical ones, because of role-playing games. Right, right. Yeah, uh, for myself in real life, I don't own any weapons, but I was in the Army for four years, so I have a little bit of familiarity with uh, some weaponry, like the M16, uh, an M60 machine gun, a law rocket, that kind of stuff. You know, so I've I've got a little bit of uh, experience with uh, weaponry, but that's you know many many years in my past. And Chad lives in New York, so he of course carries a, uh, a sawed yeah. off everywhere he goes. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I have. I was not in ROTC, but a lot of my friends were. So um, my my experience is sort of similar, 
before we, uh, <laughs> this is a sideline, but we one time, uh, went out with our gun nut friend who had a lot of weapons and, um, sh- uh, one of our friends had a, uh, Pinto. Mm-hmm. Oh no. And it died. <laughs> so we towed it out to a sand pit and just spent all day shooting the hell out of it. And there were at least two near deaths. Oh no. High school kids shooting off guns, me with no experience at all, shooting a, uh, a 22 kind of, um, target pistol. And, uh, well, I shot out a lot of things. I got to shoot everything that day, but, um, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> you about. shot all the things that day. Yep. <laughs> Sorry about that, Bob. But my, yeah, well, we had a near, we had a near miss where someone else was, was, was holding that, um, 22 and down by his side and had his finger on the trigger. Oh, and God. we were all talking in a circle. There was uh, three of us talking in a circle and it went off and made a little, you know, 22 side size crater in the sand. And we all just kind of <laughs> looked at, I mean, somebody almost got their foot shot. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, um, as far as the game, I, this, um, I find that I am more of a sort of weapon head in other games in fantasy settings and, yeah. And that kind of thing, where I'm interested in uh, combat's the main various pole arms and, and a lot of other mm-hmm. games. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I appreciate the the historical weapons of of the 1920s, uh, but it's not something that I really focus on. I actually focus more on the damage. You know, I look at the stats, D6, you know, whatever it is, um, and go with that. Yeah, one thing that I found is a great resource that I have is uh, the Investigator Weapons Volume 1, which we've got a link for that out on DriveThruRPG. And, oh, it's even on sale right now. And this is done by the same folks that did the uh, German uh, Call of Cthulhu weapons book. Oh, cool. Is that 60 Stone Press? Yeah, this is, the English version is published by 60 Stone. But uh, Hans Christian Vortisch is... um, uh, apparently, basically, a gamer and a gun expert, because he also wrote GURPS High Tech, GURPS Martial Arts, Fairborn Close Combat Systems, GURPS Tactical Shooting, and he's done, you know, just a bunch of uh, RPG books based on weapons, including for Call of Cthulhu. Oh, that's awesome! That's cool to know that uh, a real expert like that. Who's clearly, clearly he has to be an expert if he's written that many books on weaponry and combat. Uh, I mean, that's his wheelhouse bread and butter. Mm-hmm. It's good to know that someone of that uh, knowledge base was able to put uh, that book together. So that's yeah. cool. Yeah. So I recommend that volume definitely for, you know, if you've got characters that really get into those kind of things, I would definitely say pick that up because it's super useful. Uh, the Investigator's Companion has a lot of the basic stuff that are also the that I've used through my uh, Call of Cthulhu career. What you're going to get for the most part, at least with firearms, is that you've got a long list of different types of weapons that all do the same thing as far as the damage goes. You know, you've got this category of here's your D6 guns, here's your D4 guns, you know, here's your D10 plus two guns. And it's more of a role-playing aspect on the rest of the 
data on how that particular weapon functions. If it's a revolver, if it's an automatic, you know, your your malfunction tables are going to be different. Whether or not you can put a silencer on it might be different. Right. But... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of aspects like reloading, mm-hmm. you know, that that a lot of uh, game masters uh, hand wave, you know, because it's, or, or you know, put the onus of, ro- of role-playing it on the player, obviously, for, I mean, because how many of us know how long it takes to actually do a reload of certain things, that, you know, especially like a revolver, you know, how long does that take compared to uh, ejection and slapping in a new clip of a, of an automatic, you know? Yeah. It all ends out, it all ends out being the same as what it, is, is my experience in, in gaming is that reloading of, of a revolver ends up being the same as reloading of an automatic or reloading of a shotgun, you know? Um, I mean, cause I could see shotguns that hold several rounds. Um, it could take a while cause there's no, there's no fast and easy on that. It's a manual mm-hmm. slide in of every shell, mm-hmm. you know, to get it into the, uh, the housing, and then you can finally, you know, clip your shotgun together and start, you know, ratcheting through those uh, shells. But, you know, does anybody draw that out? Does anybody make the uh, players role play that out? I don't know. I don't personally, but I also, you know, I've had players who are really into the specific, you know, the differences between specific models. And I mean, that's fine. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not, I will let them be the expert at the table and tell me. Um, but I'm also not going to say to change the rules, you know, and, and say, well, it's going to take you two rounds to reload that. Um, just because it, it throws the balance a bit for me. Yeah. I mean, that could be a life or death thing, death thing. And it's a sort of investment in the, in the front, you know, when you're getting your equipment. Um, it's a decision that could be fatal in the very beginning that you didn't know you were making um, and that I didn't know that you were making until the end. I mean, I guess you, you have to know your gun stats going into, into the game. Yeah. Either way, define, define it ahead of time and yeah, and, make uh, sure and have it on your it. character sheet so you can find it quick and know how many rounds a gun might hold, you know, and look for how the rules treat these things. I need to double check on, um, on seven E, but I know in previous versions if you had a double barrel shotgun it was possible to load one shell click it closed and then fire in a round and so in my original gaming group that was our standard of where we would have a pocket a shirt pocket full of shells or a belt or bandolier (laughs) or something and every round would get a shot off because it would be click open load close fire click, you know, empty that one, load up, fire the other barrel, and so just alternating back and forth, and it was almost an infinite loadout for the gun. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how realistic that is to be able to load and fire at that kind of pace, but it certainly uh, worked as far as our uh, characters were concerned. Yeah, I think you can't, obviously you can be much more a simulationist about combat than than the rules support in Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. There are other games where load times and those kinds of things are really critical. And, um, you know, I think even, 
I would say Delta Green is a bit um, more focused on the the weaponry yeah. and the the tech. Because it is essentially you know? a military uh, format for the setting, so mm-hmm. that would make a lot of sense that your gear, your weapons, that's in kind of a, an important part of your character's approach to things. You know, are they, you know, the the firearms guy that he's going to go in and just shoot it till it stops wiggling? Or is it going to be somebody who's going to, you know, look into the investigative part and then find out what to point the gun guy at? Mm-hmm. Save the last bullet for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is it's funny that the simulation and the sort of focus on tactics is there in Delta Green, but there's no, it doesn't improve your chances of success at all. It's still very much like Call of Cthulhu where you can do all the tactics you want and it's, you know, it's, you're not going to win. So, yeah. And even in the um, Call of Cthulhu books, it points out pretty clearly that the guns really don't do much against a wide variety of mythos-based entities. Mm-hmm. That you can put a hole in it, and it's just going to be upset or confused or just, you know, it'll just bounce off. So, right, you know, guns really are the best, you know, way of dealing with um, human antagonists. But when you start getting into monsters, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the uh, story I uh, enjoyed hearing about was that you know we've all dealt with Dark Young and various games, and yeah, you can go against a Dark Young with a Tommy gun, and you're gonna be uh, just a a smear on the pavement. But in an Invictus game, a uh, a few people were able to take down a Dark Young because they had swords. No, it's re- interesting. You know, sometimes you really are better off with going with a melee because it's making a whole lot different kind of wound than just a little bullet. Go medieval on their ass. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and speaking of that, I think in in I must have started with uh Cthulhu Dark Ages and it's in Invictus as well that there are different weapon lengths that that becomes a, a more of a factor yeah. that if you have a spear, you can stave someone off. Uh, who has a sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The weapon length uh, for uh, melee really does make more sense to bring it to the front when you're dealing with a setting where that's, you know, that's your primary combat. You're dealing with different size range or uh, melees, and then your ranged is limited to arrows and maybe a sling. Do you guys remember the rule there on weapon length? Is it... it uh, mm. uh no. no, not off the top I don't of my head. Recall. You know, with I my ears and amp guard, I'm well familiar with the realities of being somebody with a short sword dealing with somebody with a long sword or a pole arm. And mm-hmm. with those kind of things, if you've got the short weapon and they've got the long weapon, the best bet you have for survival and winning is to get inside the range of that weapon as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, run the pole. If you've got a second weapon, you can just kind of deflect it aside and run up in there, get up in front of them. Well, the long weapon's not going to do a whole lot of good. As far as mm-hmm. simulating that yeah, in Call of Cthulhu, that's a bit more tricky. Unless you get the high ground, you know, because that's what Star Wars taught us. Can't win if you've got the high ground. 
Nope. <laughs> I can beat you. Right. And then I'll just I've got the high leave ground. you to suffer and die slowly, agonizingly. <laughs> um that that brings to mind the uh this YouTube channel that I have found from uh Cthulhu folks on Google Plus. Uh the guy's name is Lindy Beige. And he does a bunch of videos on various myths of fantasy weaponry or just taking a, a particular weapon and kind of going over its, its strengths and weaknesses. So he does want, he's got one on dual wielding, which basically doesn't happen. And, oh, did I put the, he does a great one on the great sword. And it turns out that, you know, that kind of two handed looking one, which, which isn't medieval. I think it's Renaissance where, um, you wield it two-handed with two hands, and I take it that it was actually developed to get inside of pull arms, and you oh. use it to kind of in, as in a kind of butterfly swing to get inside the you know the bristling front lines, um, and then once you're inside, because you can't really swing because you're in close range, it's basically a, a two-handed spear. So you're using it using the blade as a defensive mostly. Mm-hmm. And then using the point when you're in close combat, which totally goes against all of our ideas of uh, fantasy, you know, the two, the great sword, mm-hmm. which uh, it has that section in front of the hilt, which is um, often bladed in pictures, uh, fantasy pictures, but it, it's actually another handle. So you would not yeah. want that to be bladed. Well, like the sword that uh, <laughs> Conan had in the movie mm-hmm. where it had that that secondary handle above the, the hilt. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Great sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that would have been Renaissance for one thing. And, and, uh, what was that? It was not bladed. Did he use the second handle? Yeah. He did. Appropriately. Yep. Okay. He did. For, yeah. That was actually a, uh, a handle. And, you know, there were plenty of shots of, you know, holding it like that. But, you mm-hmm. know, it's. As he'd spin it around or deflect or something mm-hmm. like that with it. Or just, uh, you know, poses for posters or whatnot. But no, it it's definitely been shown to be a handle and not a uh, a secondary bladed part. Mm-hmm. Fantasy weaponry has definitely gotten all kinds of weird, you know, extra blades sticking out at angles that are more dangerous to the holder than to anyone else, and and just impractical things that. You know, you don't want something super intricate because it's just going to get messed up and it might make the the blade, you know, or the structure of it to, you know, be weaker than you want. You know, in in mm-hmm. swords, simpler is usually the better way to go with it. Less weak points. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, we'll have those YouTube links up on the site. The HPLHS even did a thing where they've got a couple of uh, PDFs on uh, 1920s uh, weaponry. They oh, and, that is not something I've seen. Yeah, I I oh, couldn't no. find a link to a page. I basically could mm-hmm. only find direct PDF links. I searched around on their site and couldn't find a uh, a page that listed them. Just in my searches, I kept finding the PDFs directly. So. So yeah, these are nice. These are nice little articles. Yeah. I just scanned a couple of paragraphs. Very interesting information about when and where you would carry particular uh, weapons and how to use them in the game. 
These are great. I wish I'd read them before we talked about yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll, I'm going to save these off and read them, keep them separate. 1987. And they're the HPLHS. Written by Leonard Sneed. Yeah. Both of them. But yeah, these are very cool resources. So yeah, we'll have that. In. We got lots of different links for this particular bit. And then I found another one for one of the most iconic 1920s weapons, which is the Thompson. Hmm. You know, the weapon that was originally intended to be sold to the military and they decided they didn't really want it. And so the manufacturer went private with it, and there's an awesome ad I need to find somewhere of it shows somebody on the front porch of, it looks like a ranch house, holding a Thompson, like, shooting at, um, it looked like cattle rustlers or something. (laughs) This is a legitimate, like, 1920s ad for using Mm -hmm. a Tommy gun for home defense. And it's just kind of weird. And I, I had heard that you could actually get Thompsons at like Sears. Mm-hmm. Wow! I found I found that ad that you're talking okay, about. Okay, cool. <laughs> and the guy, the guy's on his porch with the furry little chaps on as well, and he's he's firing the ta- the submachine gun at a bunch of the uh, guys on horses. Horses and men are dead all in his front yard. Yeah. So. <laughs> Mowing them down. I love seeing the cowboy with the Tommy gun. It's kind of, you know, mm-hmm. genre mixing in a way because the Thompson's become so iconic for gangster films. Yeah, it, it's just such an odd thing that, you know, okay, well, let's point this towards the private market. And this is the iconography they came up with. Yeah, well, and it makes more sense, right? The marketers were smart. Yeah. This is, uh, first of all, that captured the American imagination of the time. And uh, also it's practical. It's a situation where you actually would need to uh, fire upon a lot of foes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's awful. There's basically a massacre. <laughs> it's, you know, cattle rustling or not, that is a pretty, pretty terrible little incident yeah. there. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the romanticized imageries that, that we have of the uh, Thompson machine gun also is it is it broken down and being uh, smuggled in and carried someplace in a violin case yeah sure and, right and i actually found an image of a thompson machine gun in its parts and pieces broken down nested into a violin case so i, I put that link in the show notes as well excellent awesome so now so now players that go, can I actually, can I do this? You can say with confidence, yes, you can. And here's what it would look like. <laughs> but there'll also be uh, assembly time uh, required in order to, to put it back together. Cause you're not just, you're not just pulling it out. It's the weapon is truly broken down into pieces. Mm-hmm. So you'll have to have uh, some time to put it together. That is awesome. Yeah. And from what I understand, you know, Tommy's have that handle up front for a good reason that they uh they've got quite a kick to it and that right the weapon itself is like really heavy and the uh the weight of the gun you know helps to you know cut down on that kick but then the handle up front is intended to help you hold the barrel down and keep it you know in line mm. the imagery in movies that we see of being able to just you know hold it and just keep squeezing off rounds 
you know, indefinitely isn't particularly uh, realistic at all that you want to do the short controlled mm. bursts. Right. That's one of the things about the Call of Cthulhu rules that's always been criticized is the automatic rules are completely have nothing to do with reality because the longer that you hold down your fire, the less accurate you get. I mean, and very quickly, mm-hmm. right? The idea, the idea of a, uh, an automatic is for suppressive fire. It's not for accuracy at all. Yeah. But the, uh, you know, 7E does have fresh new, uh, auto fire rules, which, you know, I think help out. You know, we're, we're going to go through yeah. the 7E rules like we did the, uh, previous rules piece by piece. And, uh, so yeah, we'll get into that. But, you know, the 7E does address the, uh, approach to doing the, the automatic fire and trying to make it a little more streamlined. I'm not, I haven't read through it, uh, detailed enough to, to consider how, you know, a- uh, accurate it would be, uh, realistically, but I think it's actually an improvement for how it actually is played. Yeah. Mike Mason, uh, briefly, and he spoke about it in, in real high general terms, but he briefly talked about, uh, uh, the new improved, uh, automatic fire rules in, uh, in a thread on the forums that, uh, deals with combat. Somebody had asked a question about 70 combat and, um, I replied with a little bit of info as far as hand to hand melee combat was concerned. And, uh, he had had a question about some firearm stuff that, uh, Mike was able to uh, touch on a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, the printer proof editions of the books ha- are out as PDFs. Um, and we know that there'll be some editing and corrections on those, but they may be pretty close to final in the, in the state that they're in now. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to finally getting the, uh, the physical hard copies of the books and then, uh, eventually starting our, uh, break by breakdown, uh, review of the, of the books. So that'll be fun. Yeah. But it's, you know, something that is, you know, be, has been addressed. And, you know, Thompson's are just one of those things that as a keeper, you're going to get players who want to have a Tommy. As far mm-hmm. as I'm aware, um, I'm sure some of these book details are going to uh, clarify it, but I'm pretty sure uh, on automatic fire in the 20s was illegal then, too. You can get it at retail for, you know, a semi-automatic. So one bullet per squeeze of the trigger. But you can squeeze a trigger pretty quickly. And then it just takes a kit to modify it to being a fully automatic weapon. And then, you know, makes it an an illegal thing. But, yeah, it's not unreasonable for allowing characters to be able to go to the store and buy a Thompson. They're expensive, but... They're, yeah, you know, they are uh, available. And in World War II, I guess they were pretty commonly used. You know, I've seen lots of pictures of soldiers with uh, Thompsons. They don't have the big round drum magazine, but they've got just a long no. straight one. Well, I was going to say, if there are listeners out there who know more about uh, weapons and are really into it and have adopted house rules... Um, I'd like to hear about that in the forums. Yeah. Oh, that's a great, great idea. Wow. I, I was just going through ads and I just found one of a, it looks like out of a comic book or something like that, that a kid with this huge grin on his face holding a K-47 
cap machine gun with the the drum barrel of a Tommy and the front trigger thing. It's definitely intended to look like a Tommy. And it's got a roll of caps. But it's a cap. It's a cap yeah, gun. it's a, the red roll of caps coming out of the drum. Oh, that's awesome. God, I used to love those things. Fires 500 shots on guns. continuous roll. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Oh, the, the, the smell that would come off of that. Yeah. Thing. We'd love to hear from our listeners. We've got lots of different ways you guys can reach out to us. Our main contact email address is feedback at mu-podcast.com. We also have a Twitter account at mu underscore podcast, and you can join our IRC channel on the feedback page of the website. We have a Providence, Rhode Island voicemail number, area code 401-400-0-MUP. That's 401-400-0687. Or you can use the SpeakPipe link located on the website. Ask a question, leave us a line, or say who you are, and I'm enrolled at the Miskatonic University podcast. And give us a hearty Go Pods for our home team, the Fighting Cephalopods. Our website is mu-podcast.com, and you can find our show notes for this episode at mu-podcast.com slash 62. That's the number, 62. Our forums are at mu-podcast forward slash campus. Come join the community and be part of the conversations. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We'll see you at Gen Con. Class is dismissed. The Call of Cthulhu role-playing game is property of Chaosium, Inc. The written works of H.P. Lovecraft are held in the United States public domain. All other works mentioned in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. Original content of this show is copyright of the Miskatonic University podcast under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike license. 